Well, everybody, as the kids head off to Children's Church, or maybe all the kids are hiding in the toy room, as they all head off to their Children's Church, we're going to open up the Gospel of John. These monitors, guys, are making quite a bit of noise, so if there's any way to turn them down a little bit, I'd appreciate that. But if not, on we go. Last night, me and Cooper and Jesse were in our rooms, and uh, they were in their room, and we were getting ready for bed. And it was time to pray. And we're trying to make it a habit to pray before we go to sleep. And Jesse asked me, when do we go to heaven? I said, when do we go to heaven? Yeah, when we're very old, that's when we go to heaven. And Jesse kind of nods his head, okay, okay. Then he looks at me, I don't want to go to heaven. You don't want to go to heaven? No. Where do you want to go? Swift current. <laughs> Swift current? Yeah. So I don't know if he thought we were moving, like one day the whole family is getting up and moving to this new city called heaven, but yeah, he figured Swift Current was pretty good. Swift Current is better. So he's a lifer. He's going <laughs> to... This is his home. This is his home. And we, uh, that made me laugh. And then we started to pray, and Cooper always prays first, because if you know Cooper, Cooper waits for nobody. And Cooper starts to pray. And he was thanking Jesus for his fun day. And we'd gone sledding that day, so we thanked Jesus that we got to go sledding, and that was really fun. And then as he got to the end of his prayer, sometimes he'll thank God for loving him, or he'll thank uh, Jesus for salvation. It's really cute. And he said, and God, uh, we love you just the way you are, because you love us just the way we are. Amen. I was like, What? What was that? I never said that before. Is that like from Sunday school? I don't know where that come from. Somebody got to ask the Sunday school teachers. And here's this little six-year-old who just blows me away at prayer time. He loves God just the way God is because God loves him just the way he is. I don't know if he even understands what that means, but he said those words and I'm sitting there going, huh, that's, like, that's the sermon. I was trying to think of a way to introduce John 8 to you. And John 8 is, is blending into so many of the other chapters. They're looking so similar. And as a pastor, um, when you have like, the spiritual gift of shepherding and pastoring, it's so different than just conveying information. I could easily purchase all of you a, a copy of the commentaries and textbooks that I own. You could read this stuff. You could learn. You could learn about the Festival of Tabernacles. You could learn about what it meant to grow up in, in Israel 2,000 years ago, the culture, the practices. You could learn this stuff. I, my whole purpose of being here isn't so that you go home memorizing a new fact. It's so that you go home like reflecting on the change that God has made in your heart. When you have that spiritual gift as a shepherd, your care is seeing the sheep grow. It's like being a dad to a whole bunch of boys. Like I want to see a change inside of them. And if I see that developing, it makes me proud. And if I see it don't developing, it breaks my heart and I devote more energy to it. Like, you want to see people do well, and that's one of the hardest parts of being separated from everyone during this past two years for me. I don't mind whether our church has 50 people in it or 200 people in it. I grew up in a tiny church. This is fine, but it's, when you don't know how people are doing, there's a really big, like a barrier between how you can care for them and you can't see them. And as Cooper is saying this to me, that God loves us just the way we are, and I'm reading John 8, I decided that's the way I wanted all of you to go home remembering this story. John writes his gospel so differently than the other gospel writers. 
I wonder if he had that same spiritual gifting. Matthew's just drawing incredible Old Testament prophecy again and again, right? Scripture throughout the Old Testament. He's trying to show the Jewish people that Jesus fulfills the roles of Messiah, the prophecies of Messiah, right? His birth, his arrival, his death, all of it. It fits with what they knew so that they would believe in him and accept him as king. Matthew had incredible like eye for detail in that. Mark must have been younger because Mark writes his full of power. It's miracle after miracle. If you want to have a really fun time, read Mark. Because he's like, Jesus went here and he did this. Oh my goodness. And then he went here and did this and wow. And then he went here and did this. And like he calmed this storm and then off he went. And he multiplied this food and there's like a dead person. And he's like, get up. And then you just read Mark and Mark just like chugs and chugs and chugs. And then at the end is like, oh man, and Jesus died. But like, wow, is he powerful. Like you come back to life. It's like a superhero movie. And Matthew, I just imagine reading that going, but you missed all the prophecy, man. You missed all of it. Like, there's no Old Testament in it. How are they going to know that he was Messiah if you don't prove any of it? That's ridiculous. And then they read Luke, and both of them just lose their minds. Because Luke recorded everything. His attention to detail is incredible. He's the kind of guy who would write the commentaries for the pastor to use to preach sermons. It was this day of the week, on this day of the week, when Jesus woke up, and it was warm, it was partly cloudy, and off to work we went. There was 932 people Jesus ministered to that day. It was the third Thursday after Passover. Like, Luke is just, like, detailed. Every instance of Jesus' life, you could read Luke, and you get this glimpse into Jesus. It's like watching, like, a biography that's been turned into a movie. You get the powerful moments, the quiet moments, the reflective moments. You get this whole picture of Jesus that's so broad and full. But then you read John. You can tell John was written later. Like John just doesn't put in that same level of attention to every single story. I imagine, in my own mind, him sitting there as the pastor, looking at all those people that don't know who Jesus is. Jesus has been gone 20, 30, 40 years. And this new generation is coming up. They're never going to meet him. A lot of the apostles have already lost their lives at this time. There's not going to be as many first-hand witnesses as there once were. They're never going to hear these stories the same way again. So many people are going to miss out. So John starts to go back through his memory and recount such specific moments with Jesus. See, John was his best friend. We know that by reading through John's own gospel when he talks about the one whom Jesus loved. And then you read the other gospels and you realize that John was invited into these intimate moments. Like the Garden of Gethsemane, the moment of transfiguration. John is brought into these intimate moments. He was best friends with Jesus. So John begins to look at this world walking around in darkness. And he tries to explain them that Jesus is the light to them. If you miss all of it, know that he's the light to you. If you miss his birth story, John doesn't record it. If you miss all these little miracles, he doesn't record it. You need to know that you were born in darkness. You'll live in darkness. And if you miss Jesus, you'll remain in darkness your whole life. It's about the lights turning on. That's the only thing that John seems to come back to again and again and again. That's what they need is life. Just ask Cooper, why do we love God? We love him just the way he is because he loves us just the way we are. Do you know who experienced that? The adulterous woman in John 8, the very beginning. If you have your Bible, open it up to that story. 
But before we read that story, I want to teach you something just for a second about this story to give it more context. And here's it. If you notice in your Bibles, whether you're using your phone or a paper Bible, you're going to notice a difference in formatting, aren't you? In my Bible, this is my NIV, you notice how the text changes, right? All of a sudden, it's italicized. All of a sudden, it's a little bit smaller. They're trying to set it apart, and then there's this little note up above it. What does that little note say? The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses don't include this story. So something is unique about this story. It's not in the earliest versions of John. So when they went back to look at the manuscripts and they read them over, something odd appeared. This 11-verse story, up to verse 11, isn't in there. So what is it? Where did it come from? Well, here's what we know. We know that it was added sometime later by the church. We know that this story has... The way it's laid out in the format in which it's presented gives us enough belief that it would have been historical, especially for the early church to pass it down through oral tradition and then record it in their written scriptures. John himself did not write this in his gospel. It doesn't use his same vocabulary. This isn't written like John would write it, but for that you need to look back in the Greek. I don't speak a word of Greek, so I read that in the textbook, and it was really interesting to learn that. They're like, the vocabulary doesn't match. John didn't write this. So why is it there? Because at some point, the church read this story that John wrote, and they had heard this story of Jesus encountering this woman, and they wanted it put together. They wanted it put together. So is it biblical? Yes. Do we believe this happened? Yes. But we read it within the context that John didn't put it here. Someone else did for a reason, but what's that reason? I love this story. You've probably heard it preached before. We're going to read this story together. We're going to discuss for a few minutes what it means for us. And then we're going to keep reading John's gospel again in verse 12 and on. And we're going to see how it all fits together. Does that sound good? Let's have some fun. This is John. We're going to start at verse 53, I guess it would be, of chapter 7. And then we're going to read into chapter 8. The scripture says this, Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus' teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law. Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Okay, let's stop there for a second, because if we read the rest of it, we might miss this special moment. Why is this a trap for Jesus that they're going to accuse him of? Why is Jesus going to stumble in this moment? Well, here's the setup. They brought in one person caught in the act of adultery, How many people does it take to commit adultery? Take a guess. Takes more than one, right? So obviously, this is a little flawed right from the beginning because they haven't brought in both people. To persecute someone to the point of death for breaking the law, guess what they would need? They would need eyewitnesses. So you'd assume, based on what we're going to read in the very next story, they have at least two eyewitnesses who caught people in the act of adultery at this exact moment during this exact feast to bring to Jesus and trick him. It feels like a complete setup, doesn't it? 
But regardless, they bring this woman and they present her before Jesus. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, will you fulfill the law? Moses' law said now she's guilty of death. Why? Because she is a lawbreaker. And the fullest extent of being punished for this law is the taking of her life. What do you say? So Jesus is caught in between two decisions. One is this. He persecutes her to the fullest extent of being a lawbreaker, which is the taking of her life. They're going to physically take stones. They're going to gather around her. They're going to throw the stones at her until it knocks her unconscious and she dies. Other, like by trauma, by loss of blood, they're going to kill her with rocks. And it's going to fulfill Moses' law to the letter. Oh, what a rabbi. What a faithful, faithful rabbi to God's law. Or Jesus will do this. He'll fulfill to the crowds the reason why they love him and adore him the way he is. Because he's full of forgiveness Grace and mercy. He's teaching them a new way of living out the law of God. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mountain? Right? Instead of murder being the action of killing, instead of adultery being the action of sleeping with someone, it's now a condition of the heart. Murder is the hatred of someone, and adultery is the lust after someone who isn't yours. The law has been taken away from the hand, and it's been placed on the emotions, on the motive, the heart and the mind. So is Jesus going to be that person? Remember, he's the one who on the Sabbath violated Sabbath law to take this dead man, right? He's, he's invalid. He's laying on the ground. He has no life. And Jesus takes this man on the Sabbath and rises him up, giving him back his life. He was willing to break Moses' law in order to see this man restored. He's already set a precedent for this. What will he do? So he's caught. So either he'll fulfill the law and appease the crowd, right, of the Jewish people by killing him, or he will not kill this woman to make the crowds of regular Jewish people happy, but then upset all the teachers by obviously not being Messiah, by being a breaker of the law. So this is what Jesus does. That was a lot of rambling, but this is what Jesus does. You've read this story. He takes his finger. What does he do with his finger? What does he do? He bends down and he writes in the, in the dirt. What does he write? Do you remember from Sunday school? What does he write? Do you remember? What does he write in the ground? We'll go to this side of the room. Someone will remember. What does he write in the ground with his finger? You don't know? Someone wasn't paying attention in Sunday school. What does he write? We have no idea. Why do we have no idea? It wasn't recorded. Why wasn't it recorded? Because it wasn't the point. We don't know what he's writing down. He just bends down on the ground and begins to write with his finger, and they keep on questioning him. It says that Jesus straightened up, and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin, right, sinless, be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground. What's he writing down? We don't know. The last time that we saw a movement of God's own hand to write in the dirt for the people, maybe it's symbolic of the Ten Commandments, we don't know. But it's revealing the sinfulness of the Jewish leaders to themselves. Whatever he's writing is revealing to them that they are also lawbreakers. 
And they're questioning him. Come on, Jesus, make a decision. Do we kill her or not? Do we fulfill Moses' law or not? And Jesus says, all right, anyone here who's never broken the law, you take her life. You go ahead. Revealing to all of them, huh, am I a lawbreaker? And if I'm a breaker of the law, what's the punishment do me? Is it my life? You have to imagine this, though. If we're going to extend this judgment to her, what is it called? Condemnation, right? If we're going to condemn her to death for being a lawbreaker, then we're going to do it fairly to every person in this circle. She's going to die, and then the next person who's guilty of breaking the law, they're going to die, and then the next person, let's, let's be fair here, the next person who's broken the law, they'll die. How does that sound? Everyone on board? And they all start to walk away. <laughs> Why? Because fulfilling the law wasn't their goal. Their goal wasn't to see the law lived out perfectly. They all would have died if that was the case. They wanted to see Jesus get trapped. Verse 9 says, At this, those who heard began to go away, one person at a time. The older ones went first, until only Jesus was left there, with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked the woman this question, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Who here, he says, finds you guilty of a crime deserving death? Well, no one does. Neither do I. I don't find you today guilty of a crime deserving death. I declare you free. Go. She was caught in the act of breaking the law that we're told, and Jesus says, I declare you free. Go ahead. Go. And leave your sin behind. If you've heard a pastor preach on this, he may have caught this last verse and talked about it the most. Isn't it neat? He declares her free before there's any change in her life, before there's any change in sin. You would expect, as a good Jewish rabbi, he would say, leave your life of sin behind, my child. And if you can leave your sin behind, God will declare you free, innocent, not deserving death. But Jesus reverses it. Even though you're sinful, even though you were caught in adultery, I declare you innocent, free. You do not deserve death. The jury has decided to let you go. Now that your eyes have been opened, now that the chains have come off, go live a different life. These are all themes that are going to come up in John chapter 8, especially the second half of John 8. All of us who are born in sin are slaves to sin. Satan is the father of lies, and he's the father of all children who are born in sin. We speak his language. He is our master. Jesus is trying to show them. You can't expect someone to live for a different master until they're set free. Or a blind person, you're going to see in chapter 9. It'd be like saying to a blind person, go and live life as if you can see. And the blind person goes, but I can't see. And they think, no, just go, just live like you can see. And then at some point, God will give you back your sight. Jesus reverses it and says, I declare you free. 
I'm changing your heart. I'm allowing you to see for the very first time. And now that you can see, go and live a life that's in the light. Now that it's appeared, go. That's why I think this fits so well into the rest of John chapter 8. All right, let's pick up this story and roll with it. This is the Feast of Tabernacles still. Jesus is still at this week-long celebration. The Jewish leaders have now sent guards to Jesus to go arrest him and bring him in. And you remember, the guards came back to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And what did the guards say? Did they arrest him? No. They said, no one's ever spoken like this man before. They couldn't bring themselves to do it. They couldn't bring themselves to put him in chains. They encountered something when they met Jesus that they couldn't explain. It didn't match anything they had seen or heard. Something's up about this man. And Jesus now is still teaching in the temple courts. And he says to all the people in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. They'll have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him and said, Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Why is that? They're trying to find any way to discredit him. And in the court of law, if you were to show up and speak on your own behalf with no witnesses... Is your testimony worth anything? Sir, you're being brought in for the charge of murder. How do you plead? Not guilty. Okay. Tell us why. I didn't do it. Are you sure? Yep. Everyone else says you did. Nope. Well, you heard it first from him. I guess he didn't do it. Let's set him free. You wouldn't believe the person. Because they're going to lie. Why? Because we're all born sinful. We all look out for ourselves first. Our testimonies aren't trustworthy. That's why you need to bring in at least two other people. Like you have to have this multiple witnesses to validate. No, I saw him. He didn't murder this person. No, he has an alibi. I was there. Jesus answers in verse 14 and says, Even if I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I come from, I know where I'm going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. Verse 15, you're judging by human standards. and I pass judgment on no one. You're treating me like a human, but you don't even know my origin. I can speak on my own behalf because there is no sin within me. My testimony is completely trustworthy and true. I don't need multiple eyewitnesses to stand beside me and validate that I'm the son of God because I came from God. That's who I am. I don't need to bring people that were with me in the throne room to speak on my behalf because I came from the throne room of the Almighty. Why does he say that I am the light of the world? This connection back to the name of Yahweh from Exodus chapter 3. I am who I am. He says, I am Yahweh. I'm light of the world. Light of the world. What purpose did the light fulfill in the story of Israel getting to the promised land? 
Remember the context of this chapter. Don't forget it. They're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. They're celebrating when they wandered across the wilderness and God brought them home. From the moment they were set free to the moment they reached heaven. That journey of life. They're celebrating that. Jesus just called himself the source of this living water that leads to life. The spirit of God that he'll give them. He's going to bring water out of the rock to give them life. And now he says, I am also the light of the world. If you follow me, you're not going to walk in darkness. All the people would have remembered the pillar of light that led them through the wilderness. By day it was a cloud, by night it was fire. And if they were willing to follow that pillar, it took them exactly where they had to go. Here's the heartbreaking part though. That pillar didn't take them home. Where did that pillar take them? Where did the pillar take them? Back and forth for 40 years across a desert that would have taken, what, a week to walk across? They were days away from the promised land and the pillar took them back. I was thinking about that this week. Imagine that 40 years as they watched their moms and dads get older, as they watched their grandpas and grandmas get older, as they started to get sick, as they knew that grandpa and grandma would die, and they were days away from the promised land, days away. And the pillar starts to go in the opposite direction. Do you know what temptation they would have been faced with? We should just go. There's the promised land, four days down the road, we should just go. In Egypt, we could eat whatever we wanted. We lived a good life. We had houses. We had homes. We didn't live in tents. We should just go. We know the highway back to Egypt. We should just go. And the pillar turns again. And the pillar turns again. Why? Here's the clincher. The pillar was leading them to life. You see, if they would have broken away from the pillar and went back to Egypt, they would have faced certain death. If they would have left the pillar and tried to storm the promised land, they would have faced certain death. But only by following the pillar did God lead them into life. And it was going to require incredible obedience to follow that pillar as it moved and as it stopped. It says for long periods of time, it would just stop and it wouldn't go. Would they be willing to wait for God? Jesus appears into this world of darkness. You remember John chapter 1. He came in, he's the light of life, and he came into the darkness, but the darkness did not overcome him. And the darkness, it was his own people, but they didn't even recognize him. Would they follow him? But what if he led in a direction they didn't want to go? What if you think the best thing for God to do is take COVID away, and God says, wait. What if you think the best thing for God to do is bring our whole church family back together? And God says, wait. What if you think going through a year of conflict, if God really loved us, he wouldn't have allowed something like that. And God says, follow me. I'm going to take you through pain and through suffering and through trial. Will you follow me? But God, we just want the easy way out. We want the simplest path. What if we have to wander a little bit? What if we have to trust him and get to know him? Rely on him for our lives. And then he might take us where we want to go. 
There's so much symbolism coming out of Jesus being the source of light in a dark world. Okay, let's keep reading John 8 before I stop completely here. We have some more scripture to get through. Verse 16 says this. Remember, Jesus just said, I pass judgment on no one, but you judge by human standards. Well, verse 16, if I do judge, my decisions are trustworthy because I'm not alone. I stand with my Father who sent me. In your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I'm the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. So they asked him this question. Where is your father? Say, you don't know me or my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts. Perfect, he's got a witness. Bring him out. Where's his dad? And they're looking through the crowd. Papa, are you here? Bring him out. We'll ask him about the origin of Jesus. Is Joseph here? Jesus goes, you don't get it. My origin is not of this world. The only other person who can validate that is my father who's not of this world. But you don't even know who he is. Because if you knew him, you'd know me. You would know that I'm his son. And if you knew I was son, you wouldn't be persecuting me this way. You don't know him. You don't know him. Once more, verse 21, Jesus said to the crowd, I'm going away and you're going to look for me. You will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Well, this made the Jews ask the question, will he kill himself? Is that why he says where I go, you cannot come? Remember in chapter 7, they wondered if he was going to teach the Greeks. Would he leave the country? And now they're wondering if he's going to leave the earth. Is he going to die? Verse 23, he continued, you are from below and I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you, you would die in your sins if you don't believe that I'm he. You will indeed die in your sins. I'm not of this world. And in your sin, you're going to die apart from me because I'm not of this world. And you need to understand that my kingdom is being built and established in a different space than this world. And at this, they ask the question of verse 25 which might be the most pivotal question they ask in this whole story. If you have your Bible, what does it say? What's that question they ask Jesus in verse 25? Who are you? He says, I'm not of this world, and it's your sin that's keeping you from God the Father, from the kingdom. You're going to die in it. And the people respond, who are you? You were supposed to be the king. You were supposed to defeat the Romans and set us free. You were supposed to. You were supposed to be here forever. You were supposed to establish a throne that never ended like King David. You were supposed to come from Bethlehem. You were supposed to fulfill all the prophecy. It was supposed to make sense. And now you're talking about dying or what, killing yourself? Or like, you're going to go and never come back? But like, we think you're him. But are you not him? Who are you? Who are you? Just what I've been telling you. From the beginning, Jesus replied, 
I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me, he's trustworthy. And what I've heard from him, I tell the world. They didn't understand. He was telling them about the Father. He didn't get it. They didn't get what he was saying. So Jesus said this. Now, I have the, the privilege of having the cross on stage again. Jesus doesn't have that in front of him. The people don't get who he is. This is what he says. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father's taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And as he spoke this, many people believed. Right? He answers their question, who are you? He says, once you've lifted me up, then you will know who I am. Once you've done this, once this takes place, every question will be answered. You want to know if I'm the son of man or not? Watch when this happens. You want to know if my origin is not of this world? Watch when this happens. You want a glimpse into my father and who he is? Watch when this happens. Because what's going to happen when Jesus is nailed to that cross? In what, five, six months from now, this story? What's going to happen? God turns off the light of the world. The world goes black. The earth begins to shake. And dead people are resurrected and they're coming out of tombs. God steals the light from the world. And at the same time, explosions of life are taking place. The curtain... The sacred curtain in the temple that separates the people from God. I've talked about this before. You know this. It was the last barrier in between God's presence and God's people. And what happens to that barrier? Top to bottom, it rips in half. You're going to know who I am and that my testimony is valid. But my time has not yet Come, that will be the time, but it hasn't come. So you're all doubting me and you want me to prove it. The time hasn't come yet. My brothers are bugging me because they want me to make a spectacle, draw an audience, create a following. They don't get that my time hasn't come yet. Why do you speak in riddles, Lord? Why do you speak in parables? Why don't you just say it plainly? It's going to be very, very plain when God turns off the sun. When the sun dies, it will be made very plain. But that time has not yet come. I am the light of this world. But this world isn't going to follow me. Jesus dies after speaking to what? Tens of thousands of people in his lifetime? Jesus dies, resurrected, ascends to heaven. The Holy Spirit comes on how many humans? Pentecost, the upper room. How many humans? How many? Hundred and? Twenty in the upper room. He speaks to tens of thousands. They all don't get it. They all don't follow. Just over a hundred of them are there. Jesus exploded into a dark world with this bright and pure light. But people remained in darkness. Isn't that what he says to Nicodemus in chapter 3? People will choose to stay in the darkness because the light reveals their sin. 
and they'd rather remain in the dark. So what does this mean for you and me? What does this mean for us? What does living in the light really look like? Well, ask that woman. Ask the woman who was brought in, who was caught in adultery, who was set free. Ask her what kind of a difference Jesus makes. Ask the man who was paralyzed at the pool and Jesus on the Sabbath is going to reach down and like heal this man, restoring his life. Ask what it's like to experience the light. I can't wait for chapter 9. Jesus is going to spit on the ground, make mud, and heal this man's vision. He was born blind. He's going to be able to see for the very first time. Ask what kind of a difference Jesus makes in someone's life. Will they follow? Will they believe who he is? Light is going to cast this incredible glow on the sin of your life. How will you respond? All of us, born in sin, slaves to it for so much of our lives, and Jesus begins to burst into the scene with light. How will we respond? Because he's going to illuminate the parts of our lives that we don't want light to shine on. He's also going to be the pillar of light that we follow. Some of us have been following him our whole lives, and some of us are just getting started. Our first anniversary, just a few weeks ago. What's it going to look like to follow him, that pillar, for the rest of your life? What happens when he takes you a place you don't want to go? Or he stops at the moment when you just want him to keep going? Are you going to trust him? Or are you going to walk away? Because you have a better plan than him. You have a better idea. Once your eyes are open to the light that he shines, it's going to change your life. And then the following of him becomes very different. Once this man at the pool understood who Jesus was, his worship of him became very different. For us as a church too, because this isn't just personal. For us as a church family, what does it mean for us to follow the light when he shines light into our dark places? I said this last week and I believe it. It still stands true today. That when you look at the early church, they had this desire to read God's word and bring him in. This desire to worship him through prayer and through communion and glorify him outwardly. And they were devoted to one another. What does that look like for us? If we're going to live this way that Jesus wanted, now that we know who he is, now that he's opened our eyes to see, will we live in it? I don't find you, I don't condemn you guilty. I find you innocent. Go and leave your life of sin. Will we go and do it? But that means... Desiring God in, glorifying God out, and being devoted to one another. And without all three, we have this broken relationship with each other and with the church. Because either we love God and we hate each other, or we love each other, but we don't really love God. What does it look like? What would Cooper say? What would he say? Cooper would say this. I love God for who he is because he loves me for who I am. But Cooper, what about when God reveals the sin in your life? It's going to hurt. I hope he responds 
God still loves me just the way I am. He loves Cooper just the way he is. He loves his dad. I'm a nasty person sometimes. Still steeped in sin from time to time. Lose my patience. I get upset. I get envious and jealous. Struggle with sin day by day. He loves me just the way I am. He's never going to stop loving me just the way I am. That's a God worth loving. That's a God worth pursuing. That's a God worth trusting. And he has built and established this family. And I can love this family even when this family struggles. Even when this family hurts me. I can love this family. Because if he loves me just the way I am, I should be able to love people here just the way they are too. Even when that's really hard. Let's pray together as a church family before we go. And let's see if God will reveal to each one of us through his Holy Spirit, his spirit of truth, how this scripture applies to us. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for our church family. Those who are here in the room with me right now and those who are relaxing at home, listening to your word, participating in worship, who love you. Lord, I want to thank you for how you've brought light into my broken life. How you, you just reveal my sin constantly and yet I can trust this pillar that I follow. Because of your love, because you loved me when I was still a sinner. I can trust you to continue to love me. And that my love and your love for me, there'll never be separation between us. Nothing. Nothing will be able to separate us from your love. Because you've loved us when we were at our worst, when we were enemies of, enemies of God. Thank you, Jesus, for how you set this woman free. Thank you, Jesus, for how you've come to set me free. How you've come to set our church family free. Give us grace, Lord Jesus, as we try to follow you, as we try to listen to you as we try to sense the movements of your spirit and be obedient, as we try to raise our kids and do a good job of pointing them to you and your never-ending love and grace, Lord Jesus, give us energy as we try to navigate this world that's become so hard to live in, that is so challenging. Lord, help us to shine brightly in a world that's so dark, that is struggling for hope, and purpose. Help us to continue to reflect you, to be ambassadors of you so that the world may see who you are. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you love me just the way that I am. Thank you that you're transforming me into the likeness of your son, Jesus. And give me the courage and the determination, Lord Jesus, and the grace to never stop following you no matter where the pillar goes. We love you, Jesus. We love each other. We love the church that you've given us. I pray that you take care of your church, equip them to do incredible work this week, to love other people, to shine brightly, to draw you in and to worship you in the ways that they love to worship. This is for you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. You're all dismissed. Have a great week. We'll see you later.